and unsurpassed penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truths of the tathagata's words good morning everyone i didn't really compose certainly did not compose a talk this this morning but there are a number of things that are on my mind and i wanted to begin with uh, a quotation that uh, edward brown uh, in his excellent lecture last week shared uh, and then follow it uh, in a few moments with another one that has been really important to me. These are both from uh, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. And Edward quote, quoted this one. One day Suzuki Roshi said, life is basically impossible. Life is basically impossible. Then he got up and he left the Zendo. Uh, the next day, a student asked, Suzuki Roshi, yesterday you said that life is basically impossible. What are we going to do? And Suzuki Roshi replied, you do it every day. So this is how we live. We think of, uh, there's so many obstacles and barriers and challenges in our life. And yet we do it every day to the best of our ability. We just move through our life step by step. And it's the life that we go through is quite amazing. Uh, you know, it's in other earlier days, on the planet, your life was governed by the seasons and by the, the time of day and by your, the agricultural tasks that you may have needed to support yourself. Uh, and now just think of the complexities that we face. Uh, the number of machines that we interact with, the, uh, the technology we have to deal with, uh, the, all the exigencies of society that we have to uh, work with and see ourselves part of. When you think about it, it's impossible. How could anyone ever do this? Um, remembering uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, like maybe five or six, uh, every weekend we would drive out uh, from our home on Long Island to uh, across the Long Island Sound to a place called City Island, which is uh, sort of on the, on the coast of the Bronx in, in New York City. 
which is where my grandfather kept a boat. And it was kind of a complicated journey in our car. Uh, and I think at that time we had like a 1948 Oldsmobile convertible. Uh, and I was in the back seat. And I remember wondering, how does my father know how to get to this place and what turns to make to arrive where he wants to and and thinking am i ever going to know this how could i possibly ever know this uh, it seemed impossible and i think that's one of the impossibilities of life that suzuki roshi was uh, pointing to when he said that life is basically impossible. What we're doing today is basically impossible. Uh, we are now two years into this pandemic. We're two years into uh, doing something that we never imagined. We never imagined that the whole society would be masked and socially distanced and that so much of our relationship and, and communication uh, would depend on uh, these media like Zoom. And the thought that our, uh, that our Zen practice would depend on that is was completely unimaginable, impossible. We had, uh, you know, I'm part of an organization called the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, which Sojin was one of the founders of. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a big controversy a number of years ago because uh, there were some places that were uh, that were uh, promoting online Zen. What an outrageous idea! Online Zen, Zen has to be. It has to be in person. It has to be face to face. You know, and and we said online Zen is not okay. A, a, a teacher who who is. Uh, doing that exclusively cannot be a member of our organization. Well, guess who had the last word on that, on that issue? Uh, we're doing this. We've been doing it with a certain amount of grace and facility. We're doing the impossible every day which doesn't mean that we devalue this face-to-face. -face. And warm hand to warm hand. That's also still essential. But we've come to, you know, we've been stretched and pulled and sometimes certainly against our will and against our wishes into this new era.
And that's what we're dealing with. This is what's presented to us. That's what we're dealing with. That's what Suzuki Roshi meant when he said, you do it every day. And I'm so grateful that we have this practice to rely on. We have this practice as a refuge. Refuge in Buddha, refuge in Dharma, refuge in Sangha, all of which are embodied in our refuge in this Zazen practice, which extends to everything that we do. And Zazen itself, you could say Zazen is basically impossible. Because I don't think there's anybody on this screen who could who could say with absolute precision what Zazen is. We can't we can't really get our mind around it, and yet we do it every day. So I was, I was, I was inspired by that quotation. And there's another quotation, something that I heard a long time ago. And uh, it's very powerful to me. Uh, from Suzuki Roshi again. And, you know, I keep a, a notebook where I do some, I keep journal, I do some journaling and I do, I keep lists. So I have lists and, you know, when there's something of significance, I do journaling. Uh, and I've got these now going back mm, more than 30 years. Uh, keep them in those lab notebooks, which are very durable. Uh, and every time I get a new notebook, I write this quotation in it. Suzuki Roshi said, life is like stepping into a boat, stepping onto a boat, which is about to sail out to sea and sink. Life is like stepping onto a boat, which is about to set out to sail. To, to, I'm sorry. Life is like stepping onto a boat, which is about to sail out to sea and sink. Uh, I think when I first started copying this out, there was just a, something about that. The language and the image that caught my imagination. But with the passing years, I realize, oh my God, it's really true. You know, we're setting sail, uh, going out to sea. Uh, we don't know what our destination is. And by the way, along the journey, we're going to sink. This is birth and death. setting out to sea and then sinking. 
So today, in service, we are we observed what in East Asia uh, would be the Parinirvana ceremony for uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, this is the the calendar day that is observed for the Buddha's death is uh, February 15th, Tuesday, February 15th this year. Uh, and so, you know, usually if we were in person, uh, we would have a large ceremony either inside or outside the Zendo. Uh, but I abbreviated it this year because uh, I feel that the ceremonies, there are certain ceremonies or many of the ceremonies we really want to do in person. And so we did this as a, as a service today. But I was thinking again of in the Paranirvana Sutra, in the, there's two, by the way, there's two Paranirvana Sutras. There is a uh, Pali Paranibbana Sutta, uh, which is an earlier manifestation, uh, which is basically a long story of uh, the Buddha's last months and his last teachings. It's really, it's a, it's a wonderful text and you can find it online as the as I said, the Paranibbana Sutta. And then there's uh, a Mahayana version, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, uh, which is which is quite different. It's not the story of the of the Buddha's uh, last period of life, uh, and it's also uh, it's a wonderful and very challenging sutra. Uh, it's not as it's not as immediately accessible, I think, as uh, the the Pali text. So, in that text, we have a record of the Buddha's last words, or purportedly his last words. Uh, and those were all conditioned things are subject to decay. Work out your salvation with care. Or work out your salvation with diligence. You have to work this out. Each of us has to work this out for ourselves in the face of the fact that impermanence is the law that conditioned things are subject to decay that they go away in zazen what we experience is thought after thought goes away it arises it might seem very 
compelling. And then it sinks into the sea. So this attitude that we have, we recognize, uh, we may not remember when we stepped into the boat, uh, but we do recognize that we're on a journey. And I think in a certain point in our life, we also recognize, oh, we're going to sink. Because this body that we have, as it is conditioned, is subject to impermanence. And I think that when the, the second part of that message, to work out our salvation with care or with diligence, as I've said before, is a message about how we face impermanence. And our attitude towards impermanence makes all the difference. When we resist it, uh, then we are bound to suffer. So this is part of um, This is pertinent to the three marks of existence, which are also fundamental Buddhist teaching. Uh, the three marks of existence is that things are impermanent, that there's no fixed self, and that there is suffering. So that's the, that's the early Buddhist version. Uh, the in in certain of the Mahayana texts, uh, the three marks are a little different. They're impermanence, non-self or emptiness, and nirvana. So, to me, we can ask what. Why is one one way and one the other way? Uh, and I think what this is saying is your attitude, whether you suffer or whether you experience salvation or release or nirvana is contingent on your attitude towards impermanence and non-self. If those seem like difficult conditions or you know, if impermanence seems like a bad idea, then you are going to suffer. I am going to suffer. And I'm not immune from those thoughts. If you recognize that those are really just just the conditions, then that, uh, that means, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that
our life is just a continuation of one form to another. So, you know, once you sink, uh, your being takes other forms. It dissolves and nourishes, maybe it nourishes the fish, you know, uh, maybe it generates oxygen, but it creates life in other in other dimensions. And when you when you can understand that, then impermanence and non-self are fine. They're just fine. And I think for many of us, sometimes we feel that way and sometimes we don't. I think one of the things that comes with a real confidence in the Dharma is a stronger sense of sureness about this. And also, uh, it's a refuge. That we understand how our lives work. We understand that their lives are basically impossible, and that's fine. We understand that uh, we're stepping into a boat and sailing out to sea and sinking, and that's fine. Um, everyone who has uh, ever lived has done exactly that, has set out to sail, set out to sea and sunk. and it's true of us, it's true of our children, it's the way of our lives. So I wanna just shift a little. Yesterday, um, a number of us from Berkeley Zen Center went out to visit uh, our Sangha member, uh, Stephanie Seaborg, Seaborg and her husband, Chris Price. Stephanie uh, was a head sheet in here for a long time and was always just wonderful presence. Uh, and uh, I found her, I dug around and I found her Dharma name, which is Engetsu Onko. Wonderful name that Sojin gave her in 2014. Uh, which means uh, empty moon, peaceful light. Engetsu Onko. So I guess, you know, she was towards the end of her life. And uh, a few days ago, she had expressed to uh, Chris, her husband, that uh, she wanted to go to the Zendo and some folks who've been uh, visiting her and helping uh, and, and Chris had talked and decided that didn't seem very realistic, didn't seem realistic at all. So let's bring the Zendo to her. So um, they live out in Canyon. Uh, uh, 
I hadn't been out in Canyon for like 35 years. It's, it's an extraordinary place. It's kind of like, right, it's over the hill. Uh, you know, when you go up to Tilden, then you go down a little down to the east into the, the depths of that valley and canyons there. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable place where uh, everyone knows each other. Uh, and uh, it's a little wild. And it seems like it belongs to another time. Uh, but it was just just going there it was like, it was like, uh, sort of like entering the shires or something, you know, it's like really entering another world, driving over there. Uh, so about a dozen people from the Zendo went out. Uh, and there were also uh, Stephanie's family, her two, two kids and uh, her sister and a number of neighbors. And so we brought the Zendo out there. Uh, it was a beautiful spring day and the blossoms were opening. Uh, and Stephanie was, was on a bed laid out in the middle of the uh, living room, just light streaming in through the windows and a, just a wide green hillside that you could look out on. And she was breathing shallowly uh, and we chanted. We chanted the, the Heart Sutra and the Metta Sutta and the Enmei Juku Kanangyo for protecting life. Uh, and then an echo dedicating the merit to her well-being, the well-being of her family and everyone. And it was just a beautiful feeling. I, I will say, you know, it's the first time in two years that I've heard 20 people chanting together. And it just filled the room with warm sound. It sounded really good. Uh, and that room was also, it was filled with love. You could feel it as, as soon as he walked in. Uh, so I was really glad for the opportunity to go out there. And it saddens me to say that in the early morning hours or the early evening hours last night, Stephanie passed away. It seemed to me, my inexpert eye, that she was close, but she was really peaceful. And I gathered that she, uh, that she died easily and peacefully. So I wanted to, to share that with you. And somehow that fits with the Buddha's Paranirvana and it fits with setting out to sea and sinking.
It's a loss that certainly the family will feel hard and many people who are close to her will feel. But I'm struck by how, I'm just struck by how peaceful it was out there and also how, how fitting our Dharma was and how wonderful that, that we could offer that. It just, it's, the fact of that stayed with me all day and it's with me now, just uh, in the midst of this impossible life, we have been given some marvelous gift by which we can appreciate even the impossibility. Life is basically impossible. What are we going to do? You do it every day. So, um, I don't really have much more to say today. Um, I can leave us open for, uh, for questions and comments, for feelings about uh, the Buddha's passing away, Stephanie's passing away, our own passing away. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to open it up and I'll turn it back to Blake to uh, facilitate that, okay? Thank you. So question, how does sinking in a boat compared to sinking into practice? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, in certain ways, we have this word we call, we call practice in English. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's applied to uh, learning an instrument or, uh, some athletic endeavor, we practice. We practice the same moves over and over again until there's a unity of thought and muscle memory. Uh, so our practice, uh, our Zen practice, even though we, we think it's about the mind, which it is, uh, it's also really about the body. And so we practice over and over again. And uh, what are we practicing for? You know, are we practicing for the Olympics? Are we practicing for a concert? You know, uh, in a certain way, you could say, we're learning how to die. We're practicing. We're practicing letting go 
and sinking into the sea. And we're doing that, you know, we do that moment by moment in Zazen. We let go of each thought, we let go of our conceptions, uh, we see them, we can give a a small bow to them, but we're letting them, we're, we are enacting the fact that conditioned things are subject to decay and that that's okay. We are learning this at a molecular level. And so that's, that's, uh, that's kind of the resonance for me between, in, within your question about uh, our practice and sinking in the sea. I hope that makes sense to you. Anonymous person. I invite Maria, <laughs> I invite Maria Teresa, uh, Teresa to unmute themselves and ask a question if they could put it in video is optional, I guess. Thank you. Good morning, Hosan. This is Good morning. Maria. Hi. Very well. Thank you. Thank you for this very inspirational to me talk. Um, I want to ask a question that seems um, maybe rhetorical, but what passes away? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, certainly what passes away is, I, I can say with some sureness, uh, or perhaps faith, uh, our idea of ourself. You know, um, I really remember vividly, it was a very powerful moment. Uh, our friend, uh, one of the, uh, one of my early uh, mentors or guides here at Berkeley Zen Center was Fran Tribe, who some of you remember and uh, she died at, unfortunately, at an early age uh, and uh, pretty swiftly of cancer. And actually, when she was in the hospital, uh, the entire Sangha got together and in one day sewed her a one Joe brown robe and Sojin gave her Dharma transmission in the hospital. It was really wonderful. Uh, and one thing she said, I think it might've been on that occasion was, this is, you know, in her last few days that, uh, she observed that the skandhas were coming apart that was her perception. So the skandhas are what we, uh, they're the elements, forms, feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness that, uh, out of which we 
form or construct a sense of self. So I think that um, certainly that's something that that disappears when we die. Um, and then there's great there's great debate, you know. Of course, the orthodoxy that we're given is that uh, there's no self, so there's no self that continues from one life to the other. Uh, and at the same time, this is the conundrum in in the theories of in the very very complex theories of rebirth that there is something energetic that continues. And then you start looking even more carefully at some of these Mahayana texts, and they actually seem to say there is a self that can that continues, but it's not the self that you think it is. And all of that is beyond my understanding. Uh, or, you know, uh, when, when you asked Sojin about uh, rebirth, uh, he, I've, I've heard him say, I don't remember. So uh, I think I have to leave it at that. Thank, thank you for that question. Yeah. Thank you. Raghav, I invite you to unmute yourself and ask a question. Good morning. Good morning, Raghav. I just wanted to share something. Um, when I heard Edward Brown talk about um, that quote last week, it didn't, not much came to my mind, but then I've been dealing with a few things this week and what came to my mind is, um, you know, life is impossible in the sense I am trying to keep my child from dying. Um, uh, that is kind of, I noticed that was a clutched idea very deep. I don't want them my children to get sick and die. But at the same time, that is what happens. And another clutched idea is, you know, I don't want the same thing to happen to me. I don't want to get sick and die. But that is what happens. And what I was, what I was going through was like, how do I reconcile the both? And um, that was causing a lot of suffering. And what happened is, as I was listening to you talk earlier, also, I was going through all those emotions. But then, you know, when I just said, notice my energy, just pay attention to what's going on, the thoughts went away. That, those thoughts went away. And then there was just the body. And that came in relation to, I think, Ten's question um, a week ago or something about belief. What is the belief? What are the belief? For me right now, belief is belief in the practice. When we practice it, when we notice the change, when the ideas drop away and the suffering lessens, that is belief in practice. Um, and the ideas will come up again. You know, it'll create 
a storm again, but belief is that I can get my mind maybe back to thinking, paying attention to the body again. Um, yeah, just wanted to share that. Thank you. Uh, for me, um, let me just propose uh, the word faith. Uh, which which has more has more power for me than 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 belief. I'm I'm wary of belief, but I'm not wary in the same way of faith. You know, and it's part of the impossibility is just you know the thoughts that you had about your children about yourself make complete sense you know and you know uh the peculiar thing is that we we give birth to children knowing what you know really if we think about it all at all we know what's what the windup is going to be, right? And still, we do that to do it every day is an act of faith. And that is, uh, I think that's really important. And this is our faith in practice. Our faith in practice is not an idea it's it's actually an activity doing it every day is an activity so thank you for that sally and or ed i invite you to unmute yourself and speak hi hosan hi ed uh, my question involves um when a, a dear loved one passes away, mm -hmm. how do you deal with the deep grief that sometimes feels like it will go on? Um, and, yeah. not, and not suffer. I think that we have to really, really have to embrace the whole mess as part of our life. Uh, you're not going to banish suffering. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen. It helps, for me, it helps to First, to have some awareness and then look for how that awareness appears. The awareness is that the suffering is not seamless. It's not the entirety of what's going on moment by moment. At first, it really, it may be pretty close to that, right? Yes. Uh, 
but generally it doesn't stay that way. Yeah. Although there's a fear, I think, and this is also something to look at. Uh, the fear is that we will be cast back into that eternity of suffering. Mm -hmm. Because it's, there's still, there is still a seed of it there. Well, and I think it, we have it, to respect that. It seems like when I just let myself grieve, there's no suffering. Right. So you can let the tears come. You know, you can shout. You can rage. Uh, all of that. Uh, all of those expressions of emotion are part of the entirety of being human. Yes. But this is, you know, the, the Buddha realm that we live in, which is the Buddha realm where Shakyamuni Buddha uh, the eternal Shakyamuni Buddha is uh, in charge or watching over, sort of like God, I'm afraid, uh, except he doesn't do anything. Uh, but the, the world that we're in is, is known as the Saha world. And so the very condition, so in order to wake up and to become a Buddha in the Saha world, you have to deal with the conditions of the Saha world. And Saha means uh, the world in which things have to be endured. Mm. Oh boy. You didn't ask for this. <laughs> this is, this is, this is, you know, this is not what we signed up for, but it is what we got. But, Even though it feels unendurable. Yeah. Well, this is this is our practice: is enduring the un the unendurable, bearing the unbearable. And all I can say is, by looking at human history. Uh, it's safe to say you can do this. Yeah. Which is not to say I want you to or you want to, but so many people are bearing the unbearable every moment. Yes. And we have, we do have our practice. This is what refuge means. shelter in that practice. Thanks. Take care. Perhaps in that spirit, Hosan, Jerry Oliva writes, what about reframing this to 
life is full of possibilities or in life everything is possible. Yeah. That's I think that that's that's accurate. Uh, so long, you know, it depends on what you mean by everything. Uh, I think that I think that in these expressions, Suzuki Roshi was trying to give us some very perhaps strong tasting medicine that he felt it was important to convey. It's also really important to remember, and this is, this is something I've been thinking about, I meant to say, um, you know, I've been sorting through uh, Liz, uh, Liz Horowitz's, uh, with Ross's help, has gathered like hundreds of photographs that were uh, in Sojin's, uh, in photo albums and in, in sort of piles of photos. There's a lot of photographs uh, from very early BZC days and also early Tassajara days. So going back to the 60s and early 70s and all of the people, including some who are probably here today, lo and behold, they were very young, <laughs> really young. They were, they were kids. I, it's really amazing to see, amazing to see Ron Nestor, you know, uh, in his, in his early twenties and, and others who we know, Maley, uh, uh, all of these people that we, you know, we now see in our seniority, uh, really, really young. So the message that Suzuki Roshi was giving in these settings often were to people whose experience of life was relatively limited. So when we hear that life is basically impossible or that's like setting out to sea and sinking, uh, some of us at, at this stage of life, it has a kind of different impact. Uh, but he was preparing his students. So, so yeah, you could, I think reframing that is, is fine. And it's also important to get the strong medicine. Uh, any last questions before we, before we close or any last comments? Um, there is a comment here. Uh, can you talk about bearing the pain of someone who may die, but may, uh, but may not, but the outcome after, uh, either way is not so good. Yeah. Well, I think that there's, you know, I, I actually spoke to someone this week 
in a in a circumstance similar to what you described, where their partner is uh, in that situation, and I think that's probably uh, I think that that Chris Price and his family experienced that with with Stephanie. Um, when I think about the friend that I spoke to earlier this week, uh, all I can say from there's to hear the story is how do I hold it? How does the partner hold it? And how does the person who is actually experiencing hold it? Those are three, th three different realities. Um, I really, I, I felt, I found myself feeling primarily for the person who was in decline and recognizing that it's a person that I care about and that I know, and that person is seeing their increasing fragility, physical and mental fragility. And I really feel for them. And uh, I also feel for the partner as often, and that's a whole, that's a whole other thing to explore. Uh, a partner can be can be really left alone with the burden of another's decline in illness. And this is why, um, again, I'm grateful for this practice, because within this practice, we actually do our best to support each other. Uh, and we're taught to support each other. Uh, and again, this is something, this is something that we've had to arrive at ourselves, drawing on resources that are really out there in terms of hospice and chaplaincy and just uh, presence. But again, some of the, the conditions of our, say our Japanese teachers who came here they, um, at least from what Sotin said, Suzuki Yoshi was, was kind of, he particularly didn't train his students in uh, how to do funerals and memorials and all of these things, because this was kind of the rabbit hole that Zen priests went down uh, in Japan part of what they they wanted to leave behind and they were fortunate they had mostly a a young sangha so that wasn't happening all the time but it's happening all the time for us and we need to know we need to know how to take care of the living and take care of ourselves and each other who are taking care of the living and we also i'm i'm really grateful uh I feel that Sojin taught me very carefully as a, 
as kind of apprentice, um, I watched him really carefully, how he took care of people who were dying and how he took care of people who had died and how he took care of himself in that circumstance. So these are, these are important, these are important issues. These are important matters for us to, to study and help each other, help each other with so that we don't feel alone. This is why we, this is the Sangha refuge is for not feeling alone. So I think that's a good place that to end for today. Thank you. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.